Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. chapter 31. A capable wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid for her household when it snows, for all her household are clothed in crimson. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the city gates, taking a seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchant with sashes. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy, her husband too, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the city gates. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God in heaven, you who promise us the spirit of life, attune the ears of your people to your spirit's voice this day. Make us wise by your spirit and empower us so that we might speak words of life-giving truth to each other as we are gathered together in your name. Amen. Some of you may know that Aaron and I met each other in our early morning Shakespeare class at university. His side of the story is that he tried to get my attention, but I coolly ignored him. My side of the story is that he tried to get my attention and I coolly ignored him. I knew who he was. We took the same city bus to the school and he would get the biggest coffee from Tim Hortons and lope in the room and sit directly behind me. Whenever our professor would pose a question to the class about a particular scriptural allusion that a passage was making or some Christian history that influenced the piece, she became accustomed to calling on Aaron, 
the only person in the room, both biblically literate and caffeinated enough to answer correctly at 8 a.m. And this happened a lot, not because Aaron's a keener, but because Shakespeare's works are saturated with scripture. Christendom is alive and well in his writing, and as students, even in a secular environment, we couldn't avoid encountering the Bible. So whenever I think about the wisdom literature of the Bible, I remember Shakespeare, because he often played with the differences of wisdom and folly in characters who are thought to be wise, but are shown to be foolish, and vice versa. By turning the stage into an upside-down world for a moment, the truth can have a spotlight cast on it. One of my favorite examples of this is in Act 1, Scene 3 of Hamlet. In this scene, Laertes is leaving home, and his father, Polonius, a counselor of the king, is sending him off. Instead of the wise counsel that Polonius could have given his son at this moment, he rhymes off a series of sayings, proverbs, as if he's trying to get it all in the sage advice he didn't manage to pass along beforehand. If I were to direct this scene, I would instruct Laertes to roll his eyes as far back into his head as he could, just to drive home the point that Polonius is full of hot air and his advice is too little, too late. It's not so much that what he says is untrue or unwise. That old chestnut, to thine own self be true, is in there. But Shakespeare is revealing to the audience that Polonius is a fool. There is a disconnection between what he knows and what he does. His lack of integrity throughout the play not being true to himself or anyone else, gets him killed. This is how biblical wisdom works. Well, it's less getting stabbed behind a curtain if you're being foolish, and more the idea that belief and behavior go together. That no one can truly be wise unless one is wise practically, ethically, and theologically. The book of Proverbs shows Israel and us how these aspects of wisdom are not distinct ways of knowing, skills given to some people and not others, but that these three things together form biblical wisdom. First, we do tend to to value practical wisdom in our culture. It's the thing that gets us saying, well, this is true for me. This wisdom is know-how. It's life experience. It's street smarts and lessons learned. But this kind of knowledge only gets us so far in the Bible, especially when we encounter Jesus, who gives us a picture of the kingdom of God, the world as it will be, and it looks nothing like the world as it is. Perhaps in the church we can recognize next the ethical dimension of wisdom as righteousness, because in the Bible one cannot be wise without being righteous. In the same way, Folly and wickedness are inextricably intertwined. Foolish behavior is evil behavior. In Hamlet, it's what gets you stabbed behind a curtain, making it obvious to us which characters are the bad guys. Last, the theological element of wisdom is what we hear first in Proverbs, right at the beginning of the book, to set us up for the guidance that we will receive throughout. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This fear is not the fear that makes us run, but it is the fear that makes us pay attention and listen. It draws us close. The fear of the Lord inevitably leads us to obedience. 
the one who fears God will follow the advice that God imparts through the sages in the chapters of instruction throughout the book. Biblical wisdom is all of these things together, and they're difficult to separate. Biblical wisdom isn't only the good advice of good people who seem to make it through life okay. Biblical wisdom isn't law, nor rules that we should follow in order to get into heaven. Biblical wisdom isn't universal truth that we ought to know just by being here. Biblical wisdom is care. If you know, then you do so. Wisdom is an apprehension of our responsibilities to and relationships with God and all of God's creation, which is revealed to us by the promise of God's word in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and by the activity of the Holy Spirit. It is what we do with the good news that we've been given. If our belief and our behavior do not match, it is not biblical wisdom. Wisdom is caring about what God cares about, and the book of Proverbs is all about why and how to live in the world and culminates with a vision of this care in the ode to a capable wife. When Aaron was writing his share of daily reflections for the Christian Seasons calendar this summer, he said, Hey, on September 19th, the lectionary is Proverbs 31. And I said, Do you want me to preach? And he said, Sure. And I said, I'm joking. And he said, No, you're preaching. And I said, Fine. Because I knew that if I didn't, I would pester him to include all the things that I think about this poem. He mentioned in the weekly update email that this was an important text for my final project when I was wrapping up my time at Regent College. That project was an arts project where I made four bed-sized quilts by hand and researched the traditions of Amish quilt making as an expression of a faith lived out in a unified, practical, ethical, and theological way. The capable woman was key for my thinking because she is often held up as an unattainable domestic ideal for Christian women. As a minister's wife and homemaker, I've had to reconcile this passage with my life and my vocation. Instead of being a description of embodied wisdom for the benefit of the whole church, Proverbs 31 has been and continues to be a toxic prescription of feminine virtue and so-called biblical womanhood. A Proverbs 31 wife has become a kind of shorthand for a real godly woman. Her characteristics stand as markers of holiness and at the same time show that being like this woman is not possible nor relevant for the whole people of God. Devotionals and study guides and blogs about how to be a Proverbs 31 wife or hashtag Proverbs 31 wife on social media takes this poem and overlays it onto a culture that is familiar with the subjugation of women and authorizes this treatment by calling it Christian virtue. This narrow reading, like other narrow readings of cherry-picked scripture, misses so much of the truth and beauty of what these verses offer to the church. Aaron said a few weeks ago that the church is a space where we learn to be a living hint of how things will be when God gets the world that God wants. And that's what we're given here. A hint by example of a person who lives out her day-to-day life in relationship with and responsibility to God and God's world. So what do we see in this vision of wisdom embodied? We see a person who knows and does so 
Our translation tells us that she is capable, which sounds a bit lackluster for the kind of description that follows. Thankfully, to enrich our understanding, the Hebrew word for capable shows up in other places in the Bible. It's the word used to describe how Israel would become strong in a military sense, as other people groups are conquered when Balaam prophetically blesses the Israelites before reaching the Promised Land. It's the word that captures the trustworthy and honest qualities that Moses is to look for and the officials he appoints to help him negotiate God's law among the Israelites. It's the word that tells us about the kind of good reputation that Boaz has because of his material prosperity. In this poem, we are told that this woman is capable, and then we are shown her competence. Look at her hands. They are willing and productive and skilled and hospitable, and they bear fruit. Look at how she's dressed. She's put on strength and dignity, and she appears in the splendor of authority. And not just some home economics expert, but a religious teacher. We forget the importance of the household for Israelites at this time and imagine that the function of the home then had similar purposes as our homes have for us now. While we understand that pre-industrial self-sufficiency was necessary to sustain life and would have been the prime focus for householders at that time, we forget what else the home was for. This poem was likely written after the Babylonian exile, when Jerusalem, the center for religious formation, was destroyed. The home then became the place for the cultivation of religious identity. Household activities were bound up in the training and flourishing of the people of God. So when the capable woman speaks, it's not just kindness that comes from her mouth. Hesed is on her tongue. Hesed isn't platitudes and well-wishes, it's loving-kindness, it's responsibility. Loving-kindness is the quality that binds covenant partners in intense devotion, each to the well-being of the other. When she speaks, she offers Torah, religious instruction of the highest order. She carries on the teaching work of priests and prophets, and so builds up not only her household, but also the t entire community. This poem, in this poem, we have a model of religious piety that is not a priest or prophet, but an ordinary person whose fear of the Lord is palpable in her practical everyday life. We get this message in the form of an ode. It's a poem that elevates a hero. It's an Aleph to Tav acrostic poem that sings her praises because her wisdom is so evident to everyone who encounters her. In the book of Ruth, when Boaz finds her upon waking on the threshing floor at his feet, he tells her to not be afraid, and he will do what she asks of him, because the whole town knows who she is. Everyone knows she is a capable woman. Her character is public knowledge. She has a reputation. She is known for her integrity and is therefore recognized for it by Boaz's redemption. And, just, and, so ju and so just the same, in this poem, we get a picture of how the capable woman's reputation is evident. We see her public validation in the marketplace, where the goods she makes are generative. We see she is a source of provision, even to those to whom she has to open her hands and reach. 
At the end of the ode, the call to action is for her public recognition, that the things that she has done be noticed as reflections of her wisdom, to give her a share in the fruit of her hands. Her works and her righteousness and her fear of the Lord are to be sung. And so in kind, we keep singing it to remember and respond to that which we've received. I titled my arts project, She Makes Bed Coverings, citing the first part of verse 22, because it's a specific reference in the poem that does the thing that Shakespeare does, putting the truth in the spotlight by revealing the opposite. In Proverbs 7, we read of a seductive adulteress, and she is the antithesis of the capable woman. She is a warning. She is instead embodied folly, and we hear how her husband is away from home, and she's put on tempting perfume, and, notably for my purposes, her bed is decked out in imported linens. They are not handmade. Now, Please hear me, it doesn't actually matter to Jesus if you get your sheets from a Swedish big box store or if you make your own blankets, but it's an image that I like to help me to remember to care about what God cares about, to remember to live a life of integrity, to try to get my insides to match my outsides, to remember to listen and pay attention to what God cares about, and to be God's living hint in the world. When we sing this poem as the church, it is my hope that we do so as a faithful response to the one who calls us his siblings, who draws near to us, who cares for us. May we know and do so. Amen. Amen.